Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Really excited about the episode today. I have joined me Mike Peterson from Bitcoin Beach. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think makes it difficult for people in the United States to really find Bitcoin interesting is that we've been able to rely on a pretty stable banking system and a pretty stable currency, uh, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world. Now, it's not the case in a lot of developing countries like El Salvador, where Mike Peterson is based with his organization, Bitcoin Beach. You know, the majority of the population does not have access to banking and is a cash-based economy. So it's really difficult for people to save and invest. You know, one of the things he described in the interview is that people were buying cars and cement blocks as investment tools uh, to store their value. You know, and that's that's uh, you know incredibly different. But yeah, for people out there that uh, say that Bitcoin isn't used as money and is more of a speculative asset instead of a savings tool, you know, I think interviews like this are really important for for people to to hear about because you know there there are really tangible differences in the community once Bitcoin is introduced and. Uh, it makes me think about a lot about what's possible for people here in Tucson. So yeah, uh, Mike sold me on El Salvador. I'm going to be going down there at some point, um, hopefully sooner than later. Things are kind of intense with uh, travel right now, but um, yeah, I, I plan on being there and I plan on being there for a little bit because it just sounds so awesome and what they're doing is so great. But yeah, hope you enjoy this interview. Cool. And we're recording. Good to have you on, Mike. Thanks for doing I'm this. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, I mean, I'm really stoked. I uh, heard you on uh, Peter McCormick's podcast way back when and was very, very interested. And then uh, you came up in conversation um, with uh, somebody I interviewed on the podcast. And so I, that kind of reignited my interest in Bitcoin Beach and uh, yeah, started looking at the website and felt like I had to get you on to talk about it. So, so yeah. Um, could you uh, just describe what Bitcoin Beach is uh, a little bit? Sure. Bitcoin Beach really set out to be a true circular Bitcoin economy where Bitcoin's being used in real transactional ways. Um, I definitely believe Bitcoin's a, a great store of value and, and I definitely hodl, but I also think that the payment rails of Bitcoin are going to be crucial in kind of leveling the playing field for the developing world. And so we wanted to set out and show that, that Bitcoin can be used in real transactional ways, especially now with the Lightning Network becoming more robust and a number of wallets coming out that have great uh, user interface on them. And so that was the idea behind Bitcoin Beach to show that when people start transacting in Bitcoin, uh, it makes life much more convenient and it also creates economic growth. Sure. Yeah. So. Um... El Salvador, I was doing a little bit re of research on the currency. They use the the U.S. dollar right now. Is that correct? Yeah, they dollarized their economy, I think, back in 2000. And I think a lot of that was driven by, you know, a, a cyclical history of government printing and then times of high inflation. And because of that, borrowing costs were, were higher. And so they felt the, the best way to somewhat restrict money printing was to... Um, basically get rid of their own currency and, and have everything done officially in U.S. dollars. Um, 
they probably didn't realize that our government was going to uh, embark on a massive uh, money printing uh, scheme itself. So uh, I don't know if they're having second thoughts about it, but yeah, for now they're tied to the U.S. dollar. So, so how does that impact the economy with everything going on right now? Um, it's it's been so it's because it's been you know about twenty years. I wouldn't say that it impacts it directly so far, but I think as we see this money printing and this liquidity being pumped into the system, it will push through in inflation here, just like it will in the US. And so be because there's a lot of slack in the economy because of COVID still, I, it's not showing up yet, but we're already starting to see signs of it in commodities and other things like that, just pretty similar to as we are in the US. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, a, a really interesting way to go about running your economy on a on a currency that you don't directly that the government doesn't directly control um and i wonder if that you know even has some benefits but yeah what what is the banking uh um system like in el salvador so the the banking system um it, it's pretty similar to the u.s except uh much less user-friendly uh, we've seen that a lot of the laws and regulations that come out of the U.S., the KYC, the AML, a lot of times they're implemented a lot more heavy-handedly overseas, and that's because countries don't want to run afoul of the U.S. government or face sanctions. And so uh, it's a similar type system, but with a lot more friction and higher fees, and everything works a lot slower here. Um, it actually, it used to be better probably 10, 15 years ago uh, before the U.S. started pushing these regulations on uh, developing countries like El Salvador. Yeah, that, that's something I don't think a lot of people in America know about is um, the way that the United States really tries to control other countries' monetary uh, policies. Like um, we like to destabilize countries that want to trade in in things other than the dollar if it's selling oil and stuff like that um in a different currency and so i i think that is a huge argument for smaller countries to kind of opt out of that system you know to be a little bit more self-sovereign and away from the gangster-like policies that bigger countries like the united states enact um no, I, I totally agree. And I think a lot of times in the U.S. they don't realize, and I don't think the officials are, are you know, have evil intentions or anything. I just, I think a lot of times they don't realize the impact that this has on other countries. And so they'll push them like, hey, we think money laundering is a problem there, even though it's really not. And they'll say, we want you to do this, this, and this. And they're things that the banks in the U.S. aren't required to do. So I have a business in the U.S. and I have to move large amount of money around pretty frequently. And it's pretty easy where I was really surprised coming here and signing a $800 uh, maintenance contract for my vehicle and having to fill out KYC AML forms, you know, to, to be able to prove where I was getting this money to pay this pretty small, um, you know, contract that I was trying to fulfill. And so when we've bought vehicles down here or bought land down here, I mean, it can take weeks sometimes just to get the bank to release wires. It's, it's my money. I send it in and they won't release it to the person I'm buying something from until I give them years of tax returns. And, and a lot of this is just driven by what the U.S. government's telling them to do. So I, I don't fault the government here, but 
definitely when the U.S. Uh, has that control, they can hang it over smaller countries. Yeah, I mean, seeing what the you how the U.S. policy has impacted countries like Venezuela with the sanctions, I think, kind of sends a a pretty clear message to other countries in the region of what happens when you don't follow whatever you know our government wants um it's uh have have there been a lot of venezuelan refugees coming through el salvador not as much here as maybe you'd have in in panama or costa rica i mean we're a little further up and uh, panama and costa rica's economies are a little more advanced than el salvador and so i think they would tend to, to stop there um you have a few um, that, you know, maybe they're making their way to the U.S. and, and they wind up stuck here for some reason, but uh, not a huge influx. Uh, I was in Colombia a couple years ago and, you know, there you really see just a crazy amount of uh, Venezuelans that have been pushed out of their own country. And, and I know in Argentina and a lot of the other places, specifically in, in South America, that's a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, what... Uh... So yeah, so what have been some of what do you think's been the biggest accomplishment of Bitcoin Beach so far in trying to create that circular economy of Bitcoin users? I think just showing that that average everyday people can use Bitcoin seamlessly without any problem. I mean, we have people that, you know, from our US standards, we would say they're impoverished, you know, people that are living in shacks made of of tin with dirt floors, but they're transacting on their smartphone, making purchases, sending payment to the, the local store and having food delivered to them uh, all in Bitcoin, something that that you can't even do in the U.S. So I think just being able to prove that that there is that capability in this whole thing that Bitcoin's not going to be used to buy coffee. It's not going to be used for small purchases. It's just not true. Um, in the U.S., we have so many payment options. And so maybe for people, it doesn't seem like a priority. But for places like El Salvador, where the majority of people don't have bank accounts and hardly anybody has credit cards, the fact that they have mobile banking now, the fact that they have payment rails that they can connect without having to be there in person, that they have an account uh, with their wallet that they can store wealth, I mean, it's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you think having access to banking is so important? I think for a lot of reasons. I think one, for people to become savers, they have to have a safe place to save. And if you're just hiding it under your mattress, there's a chance of it being stolen, but there's also a good chance that there's gonna be a family member that needs it and it's sitting right there. And so I think, especially in, in Latin culture, um, if you're holding cash and you have a family member who needs it and you don't turn it over to them, um, it's likely you'll be ostracized. And so I think it's more of a social challenge for them to save. And so I think for them to be able to have money that's in a bank account or have it in a Bitcoin wallet, that's not just sitting there in front of them, it makes it a little easier for them to say, hey, you know, I'd like to help you, but you know, I have, I only have $5 right now. So, um, and, and that allows them to save more longer term where if they feel like, man, I have this money and somebody's going to come and ask me for it. I might as well go buy, you know, new rims for my car or buy some concrete block for the, you know, the second story we plan on doing down the road. Um, so you'll find historically people have saved their money 
in those type of ways by buying block, by buying cement, by buying a car actually as a savings vehicle. And that's super inefficient. So with banking and then better yet with, with Bitcoin wallets where they can be saving in a currency that's appreciating, they have this, this uh, ability to save in a way that's way more efficient and allows them to accrue wealth. And we're seeing it's really impacting the culture and really creating a culture of savings where historically there was more of a sense, well, well, I have the money now, I better go spend it. Now they're like, well, if I go you know, spend $5 on lunch, I'm gonna have to spend my Bitcoin and I think it's gonna you know, be higher six months from now. So I'll just eat at home today. And, and so I can keep that money in Bitcoin and allow it to keep appreciating. And so we're seeing a culture of savings really develop for the first time. Yeah, that's that's huge. And and the concept of time preference, I think, is it, that that's what got me into Bitcoin. Um, uh, full steam ahead was when I read the Bitcoin Standard and and Safedine outlined um, that that concept of time preference and how the actual money itself influences it. Um, and that definitely was a, a different perspective for me too. It's like that idea of savings versus, uh, um, you know, spending or, or putting it into risk assets um, that are a little bit less uh, certain, at least from like a monetary um, standpoint. Um, so yeah, super super interesting. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you, it sounds like you've been very successful in, in getting a large percentage of your area to adopt it. What what percentage would you say people of people are using Bitcoin down there? I would say with, within our, our small town, which has about 3,000 people, um, probably 90% of the families have, have at least used Bitcoin at some point in the last six months. Um, I would say probably about half of them are using Bitcoin on a regular basis. And there's about 40 businesses in our area that are accepting Bitcoin. So probably more than half the businesses are, are accepting Bitcoin. And some of them, it can be more than half of their sales are coming in Bitcoin. So it's um, not that, that dollars are not still used here. They, they definitely are. But for, especially for most of the local people, they're, they're used kind of side by side with Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really spectacular and that's the selling point that I try and uh, give people out here is um, uh, we know that our monetary system is probably not sustainable and it has negative impacts on us. And so having the um, backup um, infrastructure to transition in the case of like everything going bust is, uh, I think, really, really important on top of all the other you know, things that you outlined as far as like Bitcoin being a better money because it um, encourages savings and wealth creation um, and is much better store of value than the dollar. Uh, what what type of uh, services do the merchants use to accept Bitcoin? So right now, everybody's just been using kind of more um, consumer level wallets. So originally we were using uh, wallet of Satoshi. Um, actually, originally we were using, um, I think just a blockchain wallet. We were doing everything on chain. And um, as fees started to increase, we quickly realized that we needed to, to transfer everybody over to using the Lightning Network. Fortunately, that was right about the time that some great new wallets were coming out and the system was becoming much more robust. And so I was surprised at how seamless it was for us to transfer over. 
And so initially we were using Wallet of Satoshi, which, which has a great user experience. It's very easy to, to operate. It's very intuitive. Um, but then we were actually connected with a company called Galloway Money, and they really wanted to focus on community baking and developing wallets that would really serve the needs of people in the developing world. And so we kind of came to an agreement with them that they would develop a wallet specifically for our project uh, for free for us, just because they believed in it. And in exchange, we would give them feedback on how users were using it, on what features they wanted. And so we've kind of been in this process building it together. And through that, we've been able to do a lot of cool things with the wallet. We actually have a map within the wallet that has uh, all the uh, fixed locations that accept Bitcoin. So people can pull up their map and see all the different stores in the area where they can spend Bitcoin. And then it also allows them to do kind of push pay payments to the stores. So instead of the stores having to create a lightning invoice, they can just call up their username within the wallet and send directly to the store. And then it also gives the ability to have a, uh, a standing QR code for a lightning invoice, which, which isn't um, available right now, you know, within the, the lightning network, but we kind of have a workaround that auto generates a, an invoice when they scan the QR code. So it's allowed us to take out some of the friction points because that's the other thing we realized for the stores, people don't like change and they don't, want to move from one thing to another unless it's significantly easier and better and so we had to make sure that using uh bitcoin for the stores was a far superior experience to cash and now with these things and initially the stores had to you know put down what they're doing pull out their phone open their account create an invoice have the, the purchaser scan it and make the payment it wasn't a huge thing, but it's it adds a little time. It adds a little friction. Um, if it's a if it's a little mom and pop restaurant, maybe the, the there's only one person working working in there, cooking the food and taking the payment. So they'd have to you know wash their hands, put it down, create this. But with uh, with this ability, they don't have to do anything except look over at their phone and see that transaction come in. So it's been. Uh, it's been fun kind of seeing how people actually want to use this on a daily basis. And a lot of times what the engineers and the technical people think people need and what people that are actually living in these places think they need are, are two different things. And so we're able to kind of walk that with them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, the, the learning curve is, is definitely there and that's kind of a typical, um, uh, response I see with people a lot of times is like, you know, Bitcoin in and of itself of like understanding it is a major paradigm shift um, from the traditional systems. But, you know, it's like I, I, I've experienced that, like working with, um, you know, family members trying to convince them to stop sending checks and, and just use Venmo um, or, you know, some cash app or a service like that and just that transition can be a little bit overwhelming for people sometimes um so yeah i totally get it how how does that like you know like using a wallet for services how does that compare to the the um kind of traditional financial system that's down there do they use payment processors and debit cards and things like that or is it mostly a cash based economy so it depends on the level of store. So you have the, the bigger businesses, the, the bigger operations, and they all accept credit cards. 
but you have uh, a lot of small mom and pop stores um, that would never be qualified to accept, you know, usually have to go through a qualification process and be able to process a certain amount and then be able to pull your credit and do all those things to be approved to take credit cards. And most of these smaller businesses uh, just will never be approved. And so they've had to do everything cash in the past. The other thing, because El Salvador is a smaller country and there's not as much competition within the credit card market, the fees are crazy out of sight for the merchants. I mean, they generally pay about 6%, um, mm-hmm. which is close to double what, what merchants pay in the, the U.S. And so, you know, that also is a huge obstacle for people to, 6% can sometimes be somebody's profit margin. So if, if they're paying that in credit card fees, it makes it unsustainable. Yeah, that's that's pretty wild, and that that's another big selling point for Bitcoin in the United States is because even the the three percent fee that people typically um, or merchants are typically eating uh, from using the payment processors is is quite a bit of money. I mean, you, you know, we see it like you walk into a small gas station uh, in a rural area, and they say they'll have a little sign that says. Um, you know, there'll be an additional fee charged to you if the payment's under this, or, or the, it'll even say we don't accept um, debit credit transactions for anything under this as a result of that, you know, because, it, and especially right now when when business slows down, I was in a local coffee shop um, right towards the beginning of the pandemic and when things had really slowed down and I just asked them like, what are the fees? Um, that you're being charged by the payment processor. And I think they were using Square. Um, and, uh, you know, they were telling me like they, the fees had been jacked up, you know, as their business had slowed down a tremendous amount. And uh, yeah, it's just a major headache to, to deal with. Um, it's kind of like an additional tax almost. Um, no, 100%. And, and Square is actually one of the, the better companies out there mm-hmm. when it comes to fees. Um, I know with within, so I have a business in the US, we have a food service business, it's seasonal. And I think uh, last year we were shut down because of the pandemic, but the year before when I was doing my accounting at the end of the year, we had spent $40,000 just in fees from the credit card processors. And you know, that's a huge chunk of what our profits were for the year. So, and that's at a much lower rate. So than they're paying here in El Salvador. So for a lot of these businesses, it just would never make sense to, to take credit cards. But because of that, they've been confined to cash. They have the security issues of cash. They have the inconvenience that comes with cash and needing change, you know, the, the time to, you know, make change and all those things. And so for them to kind of leapfrog credit cards and go right to Bitcoin, it's faster. Lightning, lightning transactions happen much faster than credit card transactions. Um, and then the fees are, you know, 1% of what a credit card transaction would be. So they're able to leapfrog this and they're not beholden to one processor or needing to have uh, one certain type of uh, equipment. They can do it on any phone and they can interact with any wallet. And so it really is a very freeing aspect for the, for the merchants. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, what what's the internet infrastructure like down there for the average person? So where we're at, we're we're a ways outside the capital city, um, and so 
it's just been in the last couple of years that we've had high speed internet come, but now we do have fiber optic where we're at and uh, it's been an important part of our project and we're actually looking to build a community wide uh, Wi Fi network in in the villages mm -hmm. where we're working. Um, just because we believe connectivity is important, but pretty much everybody's connected these days in some sense that um, they'll have cell most of it's through their cell phones. Um, but we really want to increase that and take it to another level, especially when people are doing online school or trying to, to work online, those things, it's, it's very challenging if they only have cell service. Yeah, that's a community Wi-Fi like that would be huge. And I know they're working on some projects like that in the United certain cities in the United States. Like I saw one in Detroit and I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but man, if you guys have fiber optic, you're already ahead of Tucson. So <laughs> We, yeah, the uh, the community Wi-Fi. So we're we're also going to integrate it so that people can pay for it uh, with Lightning. So there there will be charges. Just we believe it's important for people to pay for things. Otherwise, they take it for granted. Uh, we'll subsidize that and keep it affordable. But we're going to integrate it so that they can pay weekly or daily or monthly uh, with Lightning, and so they don't have to go to a kiosk to pay for it. Or a lot of them don't have bank accounts, so they can't. You know, they've never been able to do it online. So this will make it seamless for them. When they want internet, they send some sats and they're good to go. Yeah, that I mean, that's huge because that, again, is just another on-ramp to getting people to use Bitcoin, um, whereas they may not have been using it as much before because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, do people run nodes down there or is it mostly... Um, custodial wallet types things so we like as part of our project i mentioned we are we've built a wallet that that's used for the project so we're running a node for that wallet it is custodial um, we're trying to move to like a hybrid so um, we where it's the the treasury is held in a multi-sig wallet that there's people within the community that hold the keys for um, Ultimately, we'd like it to all be non-custodial, but until the user experience catches up, um, you know, to, to expect people that are just coming into this to, to manage lightning channels and to do all that um, would, would hold us back from, you know, people actually adopting. And so as kind of a stopgap measure, we've come in and developed this kind of hybrid uh, model for the wallet. And we're actually open sourcing the wallet right now so that um, people that want to stand up versions in other communities around the world to be able to use it. And then also for um, people that want to work on developing the code can come and participate in this project. Yeah, that's huge. I, uh, I, I was talking with uh, somebody down in Uruguay who's trying to set up uh, Bitcoin uh, or on-ramp Bitcoin donations as a possibility for an organization that he's working. And there's definitely a lot of different um, obstacles as far as like, you know, it, in the United States, it's really easy to go on Amazon and order a Raspberry Pi and, you know, all the various things that you do, but it's a little bit different um, down where he is. Um, is that, you know, one of the obstacles preventing people on top of the, the difficulty of actually running the node? It's, it's somewhat of a challenge. Like a lot of times when we were getting equipment, we'll, we'll bring it in from the US, you know, and when we're, when we're flying down here, just because it's easier to source there. Um, and part of it's just the, the technical uh, capabilities and levels. So 
we're really focused on that and on the educational part and bringing people uh, up to be able to take it to another level. Um, I'll freely admit I, I don't come from a tech background. I'm, I'm uh, you know, still learning in that uh, aspect. I'm more was always more focused on the monetary side of, of Bitcoin and, you know, the, the role it plays as money than the tech side. And so I'm playing catch up also, but we have some really bright uh, young people that are part of our programs here and they're leapfrogging my knowledge. And, and I could see in a year or two from now, them kind of leading the way in this field. Yeah, I, I'm in a very similar boat as you in that regard. I've definitely taken the deep dive down the lightning uh, rabbit hole, but yeah, managing channels um, is, is pretty, you know, difficult in setting up, uh, you know, my BTC pay server to accept lightning payments versus just using like a custodial wallet, like blue wallet is it, it's a night and day difference. So I think it's a, um, I don't think it's, like a negative at all what you're doing it makes a lot of sense um yeah, and i know you know there there are you know different opinions within the, the bitcoin world and so we always like to you know confirm to people yeah we we believe not your keys not your coins and we want people to work in that direction and we believe people should you know seek to achieve non-custodial uh, especially for their their long-term savings but we also feel that there is a role for custodial in the transactional part, at least during this kind of interim period, while the experience of the non-custodial is, is catching up where it needs to be. So um, that's our, our vision. We want to head that direction, but we also don't want to uh, hold people back from utilizing these things, uh, waiting for the technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like the, the great thing is, um, you know, when when I talk with people, a lot of times I remind them that Bitcoin has only been around for 12 years. Um, and, you know, so things are going to be a little bit rough around the edges and it's not, um, uh, you know, it's going to take time for these things to, to happen. But I feel like, you know, where we're at right now, there's going to be an insane amount of development going forward because there's just more and more money flowing into it. And it's a lot more profitable uh, to be doing. So, I mean, just like thinking about things like, you know, square might be on ramping for, to allow, um, lightning, uh, integration into their payment processing platform, which would be, you know, unbelievable. And if that becomes like the industry standard, I think it's going to get, you know, exponentially easier to be doing these things. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of people that were introduced to lightning, you know, maybe three or four years ago, and, you know, they maybe have a negative opinion of it because at that time it wasn't functioning, but it's, it's a whole other world right now, and especially you have companies, uh, another great one is like Strike and what they're doing with, with payments through the Strike app. And so we've actually been working with Jack Mollis and his, and his, uh, his team, and um, yeah, they're hopefully going to be coming down here and we've already started sending some remittances from the US that have um, uh, our team members have been receiving. So, I mean, it's a night and day experience from how it was before. Yeah, Strike is a major game changer. It is like, you know, for people listening, it it's like Venmo, but built on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. So it's way better than Venmo. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like one of the most exciting projects that's out there that I've seen. Um, I really appreciate his company. I really appreciate zap too, because that's a great app. If you're running a lightning node to be able to, you know, use it on your phone instead of having to log in on your home network, on your computer to be controlling yeah. it. Oh no, definitely. Uh, just, just a real quick correction. Sorry, Jack, I said your name wrong. Mollers. I have another friend named Jack Mullen. So I was, <laughs> hey, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. No, but uh, we're excited to have um, them down here and see how, how they'll be able to transform the, the remittance world through applications like Stripe. Because right now, I mean, a lot of these people are paying 10, 20% in fees to move money. And these are some of the, the poorest people in the world that pay the highest fees. And so to see them kind of turn that on the head and have these people being able to send value for basically for free or for very, very limited fees, uh, we really think it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, that that's uh, that's huge. How is remittances a, a big part of the economy where you're at? It's a huge part. It's uh, I think last time I checked the statistics, it was 22% of the GDP is from remittances. So, I mean, I think there's only a couple other countries in the world that have a, a higher percentage of their GDP based on remittances. So just, just for example, I, I think here, uh, it's about 5 billion a year that they get in remittances. Say you figure an average 10% fee, that's $500 million that's being siphoned off you know, by, by Western Union, by these other companies, rather than going to the end user. And so just that, to be able to have 500 million more being injected to the people who need it most, I mean, that'll have a huge life-changing impact. How, how long does it take um, for the typical remittance to go through a service like Western Union? It, it depends, um, and they are getting better, but it's still generally, you know, at least 24 hours. Um, and it's not even so much the, the transfer time, but the fact that most people have to physically go to the office, um, both on the sending side and the receiving side. And especially here, that means people getting on a bus, spending, you know, at least an hour on the bus, maybe two, then going and standing in line, getting their money then hauling back. So if it's a smaller transaction that's being sent to them, I mean, between the fees that the, the company charges and the transportation costs, they can eat up a lot of that, including a bunch of their time. So now instead of them having to do that, they can be sitting in their house here, call up their son and say, hey, can you send me $10? And the son can say, yeah, boom. Where before, it wouldn't really make sense unless you're going to send at least a couple hundred. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, so it, one of the dreams that you have is, uh, to create a Bitcoin tourist destination. I know, um, COVID, uh, has kind of put a damper on that, but, um, when that starts going, what, what can people expect when they visit? Well, COVID definitely has slowed that, but, but we've had a ton of Bitcoiners that have already showed up. They've, uh, the country is open here. You just have to have a PCR test to, to get in. And so those that are uh, looking to travel have still been able to make it down here. Um, what you can expect is to be able to pay for most everything in Bitcoin. Um, we have a number of great hotels here that are accepting Bitcoin. 
The location itself is a beautiful, small beach community, uh, amazing, uh, amazing waves here. It's a real big surfing destination. Uh, there's a real focus on yoga and health. And so there's um, a lot of fitness classes people can participate in. There's infrastructure, everything from, you know, a shared room at $20 a night to $400 a night rooms, um, you know, with five-star service. So you have the whole spectrum of uh, hotels and restaurants, uh, some amazing, amazing restaurants here. Uh, my favorite is a restaurant called Vikingo. So if you come, you definitely have to check it out. Uh, some of the most amazing ribs uh, you'll ever have in your life and uh, great chicken pad thai too. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a small town. You'll find it easy to meet people. You'll run into other Bitcoiners. Now we have great internet. So you have a lot of people that are coming here for months at a time and are working remotely. So they can get up early, go surfing, come back, put in a full day of work and then go watch the sunset or uh, go to a yoga, yoga class around sunset and uh, have a whole different lifestyle than they'd be able to have in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I would love to just drop everything and go down there for a few months right now. <laughs> yeah. It, um, yeah, what, what has been the impact on the region as a whole with what you're doing right now? Are, are people looking at what's happening and getting interested at all? Yeah, it's definitely creating waves. Um, and it's, it's been funny because a lot of people in the capital city have remarked like, wait, how come these people on the coast? Because the coast here is seen more like, you know, the mountains or the, you know, the way out, you know, where people live in the city and that's where um, people are more sophisticated and the coast is kind of a little more hillbilly. And uh, so they've been kind of shocked that this transformation is coming from the coast. And um, we're starting to see places in the capital city that are now wanting to accept Bitcoin. We actually have a lot of people drive from the capital city to El Zante to buy Bitcoin, either from the ATM that's here or from individuals that there's kind of a peer to peer market that's developed. And so El Zante is definitely the, the easiest place for people to get a hold of Bitcoin in El Salvador. So we definitely see people taking notice. Um, we're, we're trying to engage the, the local government here. The El Salvador has one of the youngest presidents in the world, and he's definitely very forward-looking and wants to embrace technology and wants to uh, do things that will drive growth. And so we think there's a real opportunity for El Salvador to, to be the first country in the world to embrace Bitcoin as an official currency. They don't have their own currency, so they don't have to worry about competing with Bitcoin. And I think if they did that, the, the jobs and the companies would swarm into El Salvador and, and want to domicile in a, in a country that's committed to Bitcoin and to, um, to pushing this technology forward. Yeah, that, that sounds like it would be a major game changer. Um, we, we, we've seen that before. Um, I, I think it was Malta that was very friendly towards um, cryptocurrencies. Um, and they drew a lot of uh, different companies. So I think that's definitely a surefire way to, if the country um, did adopt Bitcoin as the official currency, would that change? Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, you know, we see today is, um, uh, you know, we tend to think of Bitcoin and, and denominated in whatever 
local currency it is do you think like that would if things started getting denominated in bitcoin versus uh dollars and then sending the the equivalent of bitcoin do you think that would change the way that uh people kind of viewed the asset i i think that takes time i think we're creatures of habit and we think in one way and that slowly changes over time so how how i like to explain it is when you're learning a foreign language in the initial stages you you think of everything in English and then you figure out how to translate it. And then over time, you start actually thinking in that foreign language and, and not taking that kind of two step. And I think with Bitcoin, we'll see that same thing. I also think that if, if El Salvador you know, were to adopt Bitcoin as an official um, currency, it, it wouldn't be the only one. It would be an official currency. They would, I'm sure, continue um, to also have the dollar be where most transactions happened but I think we would see that slowly shift over time as it shifts around the world. And so they have the unique opportunity to, to lead the way in that and to let companies in the space know that they're serious about pursuing this. And so, um, you know, it's definitely still a long shot and we're definitely swinging for the fences, but we've, we've been meeting, we've met with the, the Minister of Tourism, we've met with the, the Minister of the Economy and we, are kind of pitching this vision of, of this opportunity that they have. And like I said, they've been very receptive and very open and, you know, not having many commitments or anything, but they definitely are wanting to embrace the future and see how they can drive this economy forward and provide good paying jobs for people. So um, we're very hopeful. Nice. Did you convince them to buy Bitcoin? You know, we didn't uh, we didn't talk to that directly. We were trying to portray more on the broader scale that um, you know the impact that it, it would have. And so um, I'm not sure if they have or not. But uh, and you always want to be careful too when you're with dealing with government officials that you know usually I'll give people some Bitcoin to kind of try out. But when you're with government officials, you don't want there to be any sense of impropriety or anything like that. And so uh, I'm not sure if they're personally using it or not. But hopefully they are. Yeah. 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 It makes sense. makes a lot of sense. Um, it could be definitely viewed as a, a bribe. Um, yeah. Which... I mean, you just want to be clear with that sort of stuff. So, um, but yeah, I love usually when I, when I am interacting with somebody, I, I love to just give them five, $10 of Bitcoin and have them send it back and forth and start using it. I, we found that's definitely the best way to get people interested in it when they realize how easy it is. Mm -hmm. and you know how it can interact with all these different wallets you don't have to it's not a closed system like paypal or venmo where you have to send you know the other person has to have that same account and because of that it's very freeing yeah it's uh you know very very different i mean i love doing that too sending people lightning transactions um of just like 50 cents to show them how inexpensive it is um and uh it's yeah, it's definitely a game changer. So the Bitcoin's on a, a major run up right now. Um, how has that impacted people down there? I think, you know, price, people always are attracted to price. And so it definitely um, makes it easier to get stores to start accepting it or for people to kind of take another look at it. If initially they kind of dismissed it and they see the price going up. They, they want to take another look at it and start using it. Um, we try to not focus on price. We're more focused on the Bitcoin payment rails and the network and the, 
the fact that anybody can use it and people can't be kept out of it just because they don't have a lot of wealth or they don't have the proper uh, you know documentation and those things and so um in fact when it gets going too hot um i'm always thankful when there's a pullback so you know it ran up to 58 there uh several weeks ago and then we had this good pullback i like seeing those because it kind of tempers people's expectations it keeps them you know from wanting to go out and sell their family property and put it all in Bitcoin. We, we definitely don't want to create speculators. We want to create measured wise savers who are saving over time and stacking sats with a long-term perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. We've seen a lot of speculation in the United States right now, for sure with, um, you know, people buying on, on credit. I, I had a guy come to my Bitcoin meetup um, just last week talking about, you know, putting a, using a credit card to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. And I was kind of like, eh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea, you know, to leverage it, especially if you don't really understand it first, um, understand its properties and how to use it and how to secure it. Because, man, like, you know, just, just going out and buying something on a bunch of leverage and then you know losing it or you know it'd be pretty pretty devastating um but yeah slow and steady definitely wins the race when it comes to bitcoin just that constant accumulation and um and we've seen i mean we've seen people that have been saving since you know bitcoin was five thousand, and you know they may have saved you know the equivalent of a thousand dollars, but now it's worth four thousand, and so where even I know one person, I think they'd saved about two thousand dollars, and it was worth like twelve thousand dollars now. So um, we're definitely seeing those success stories, and we encourage that, but we don't want to encourage short-term speculation. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's huge, and I, I think that is just. I'm sure for people in those positions, it's it's absolutely life changing, you know, to have that amount of savings, um, and probably the first time in their lives they've ever experienced something like that. No, I and mean, we've had lots of them tell us this is the first time I've ever had more than a hundred dollars to my name, and I have three thousand dollars. I can go replace my roof, you know, or or get braces for my kid, or you know, these things that they never thought that they would have the money to do. So. Yeah, and you were talking a little bit earlier as far as um, people using uh, different like hard assets like cars, and I think you said cement blocks as a store of value uh, in the past. Is is the um, uh, are the financial tools not very sophisticated out there as far as like investing? Well, especially for investing in like stocks and that sort of thing, there's there's virtually no access unless you're in the you know the upper class and you have direct links to a kind of um, you know custom brokerage setup. You you don't have any ability to invest in anything other than like bank CDs and that sort of thing. Um, but as far as just banking accounts themselves, for a lot of people the fees involved and just the hassle of having to take the bus to access the bank and wait in line. It just doesn't make sense for the amount of um, that they have to, to save at that time. So they never get started. And so that's why it's so important for people to be able to use their phone for these things. And we see this even in the US. I mean, I'm, 
I'm always shocked at the number of people in the U.S. who don't have bank accounts. Um, we have a food service business in the U.S., and a lot of times employees they're using cash, uh, check cashing services still because they don't have a bank account. So we've seen companies like Cash App kind of step into that void and become the the banking service for the unbanked, even in the U.S. And I think you're going to see that to an even bigger extent in the developing world. Yeah, uh, that's something that's really interesting. Uh, and I think a lot of people that I interact with don't really have that awareness as far as, uh, especially people in the financial um, system don't really have that awareness of how many people are unbanked or underbanked in the United States. And then looking at it globally, it's a lot higher. Um, there's this really interesting book called uh, Why Nations Fail. And um, the thesis of it, it, they use Nogales, Arizona as a uh, example. And so Nogales is like right on the border. Uh, half of it's in Mexico and half of it's in Arizona. It's about an hour south of Tucson. And, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why they explain why nations fail is um, lack of access to good banking systems. Um, and, and the biggest one is kind of like going off of the, the things that you listed earlier, as far as, um, lack of ability to safely store your wealth. Uh, another one is the inability to access lending, um, equally, you know, and one of the things that you described as far as the way the economy works down there is there's different tiers of access depending on your, you know, socioeconomic status of like, if you're wealthy and you're established, you have access to all these financial tools that the average person doesn't have is I, I is that something that um as far as like lending platforms is that something that your your organization is exploring at all for people down there it's definitely something that we're thinking about of being able to facilitate uh the ability to do that within the wallet and within the community when we obviously want to be very careful um you know there's a lot of horror stories of people losing their Bitcoin or, um, you know, being exploited in some way. So we, we want to be very slow into how we go into that. But, but we do, we feel it is important for people to have access to banking, for them to have access to be able to, to borrow, to invest in their business. And so uh, I think going forward, people that are dealing in Bitcoin, because it is such a pristine asset that it will be something that can be used as collateral for them to borrow. We want to encourage them to do that in, in safe ways so that they don't wind up losing their Bitcoin. Um, but I did actually have a meeting last week with a, um, a financial platform lender. They kind of, their, their, their target market is people who are not able to access the banks, but have been being exploited by the loan sharks. And so they want to come in and be able to provide them um, the access to, to borrow, but at a more measured rate and at a rate they'll be able to pay back. And they're looking at using uh, Bitcoin as a way for people to repay their loans. So they would still be priced in dollars, but they would actually give them a significant discount if they made their payments in Bitcoin over the Lightning Network because it saves them all the expense of having to collect from them. Um, and most of the people they're, they're loaning to don't have bank accounts. That's why they're, they're coming to them for these loans. And so for them to be able to access um, 
and borrow to, to build a business or to pay for healthcare or, or problems that come up, but to be able to make the repayment in a way that's at a lower interest rate, but also uh, less of a hassle for them to actually make the payments. Hmm. Yeah, I think those platforms are, are really interesting to look at in the future. I, I think the infrastructure that we see right now um, is it is pretty scary. You know, when you look at like all the, the rage going on with DeFi and it's just built, it's a Ponzi scheme built on top of a Ponzi scheme um, on a broken blockchain, um, which is, uh, you know, I, I have people asking me about it periodically and I say, yeah, I don't know about that, but you know, they're talking about building things on, on liquid um, and on top of Bitcoin, which I think is a much better foundation uh, than, you know, some of the other projects that are, are being done. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to, to look at what happens in the future. But yeah, I mean, just the, the concept of like being able to save money is such a big game changer. Um, yeah. And I think you have like even um, with within Lightning now they're 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 developing I, I can't remember the term for it but basically people can provide liquidity and and they can be the ones that fund these channels and then they can earn fees from that so I think there will be um, more straightforward and more and safer you know there's always risk anytime you 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 know have somebody else control your your Bitcoin but. I think over time there will be the risk reward trade-off will be clearer and people will be able to make those decisions uh, if they're if they want to try to earn some extra interest. And then it's also exciting that you have you have uh, companies like RSK that are attempting to to build out some of these things, but on Bitcoin rather than ETH. And so to see how that develops and and see you know where they're able to go with that, I think. I think the whole financial industry is going to be turned upside down over the next 10 years. I think these companies, the insurance and these finance companies have no idea what's coming, but I think 10 years from now, it's going to, you know, look as inevitable as you know, the internet seems now and people will wonder, well, why didn't they see it coming? But people get kind of stuck in, you know, how things were yesterday and they're not looking forward. And so I think people don't realize, you know, how big of a shakeup is coming. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. It's like, you know, looking back at uh, Blockbuster and Netflix, I think it's going to be a very similar situation. Um, it's, I mean, if you really understand uh, Bitcoin, it definitely seems like an inevitability. Um, but that that's the hard part is to, to understand Bitcoin. You have to have like basic understandings of a lot of subjects that aren't really taught a lot is, um, is financial education and economics uh, a piece of the education process for people in your region? 100%, 100%. And Bitcoin actually makes that a lot easier because it forces people for the first time in their life to consider, well, what is money? And why does this piece of paper have value? And why does Bitcoin have value? And so for a lot of them, they've never thought about those things. A lot of people in the US have never thought about those things. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of forces them as they kind of think to start moving some of their assets into Bitcoin. They want to know, okay, what's behind it? What's backing it? What gives it value? And that forces them to, to, to go through that same process with the dollar. And it also forces them to think longer term. Okay, what, what are my longer term goals? And where do I want to be saving in order to achieve those longer term goals? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, like you said, it, it's definitely something in the United States that isn't taught a lot. Um, most people, you ask them what money is, they, the explanation that they can give is like, oh, well, it's what I get paid in and what I buy stuff in. <laughs> and that's about as uh, far as it goes. People don't uh, realize, you know, it's we're not on a gold standard anymore. They don't realize, you know, that what the Federal Reserve is or central banking and you know, a lot of these things. What What is El Salvador's um, take on uh, Bitcoin and the way that they tax it? Is that... So far, it, it's, um, you know, like a lot of the world, they, they haven't really uh, come out with any regulations. So it's kind of a gray area. Uh, I think they're trying to figure out, you know, what rules they should put in place. And we're trying to encourage them to really think about... Um, putting these rules in place in a way that will attract people from the Bitcoin space to locate their companies here. Uh, so right now, like the stores that are accepting Bitcoin, it goes onto their books, just set like cash would. So at the value, if they sell something that's a $2 item, whether it was paid in $2 in cash or $2 worth of sats, you know, it goes on their books as $2 as far as their accounting and, you know, what they do with the government. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they've um, really nailed down any regulation on how they want to handle it yet, which is fine. I think it's, it's better for them to wait and to do it slowly once they realize how they should do it rather than to rush in and do a bunch of damage and put regulations in that don't fit what Bitcoin is. Yeah, is there a, a sales tax then or, or how do they tax these businesses? So there, there is a, um, like a value added tax, they call it EVA mm -hmm. here. And so it's built into the price of, of goods that are sold. And so, so yeah, so they'll, they'll just, like I said, they'll just put it on their books like it was dollars um, that came in and pay the same taxes, whether it came in as dollars or credit card or uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, so value added tax is something that, um is used in, in Europe. Um, it, we don't, from my knowledge, have one in the United States. Could you explain that a little bit of how that works? I'm definitely not an expert on it, but I'll, I'll give it a give it a shot. A lot of times it moves down the, the food chain. So at each level, there's a tax put on. So say I'm a, a store that um, sells Coca-Cola. I will pay, and the supplier, say, pays a dollar for the Coca-Cola and they're going to sell it to me for a dollar 10, they'll add the EVA. So maybe it's a dollar 25 when I pay for it. And then I go ahead and charge the customer. So it gets passed on at each level. And so for a business, like if, if you're charging your customers EVA, you get a credit for what you paid for EVA from your supplier. So you don't, you don't have to pay each step, but it's um, you pay kind of the highest amount in the chain as it, as it works up the chain. Um, that didn't come out very clearly, but it's uh, it's not like a sales tax where it's charged at each level because there is some credit given back for prior EVA paid. So I think that's the best way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It's a it's kind of an interesting concept. I mean that. The problem I have with sales tax is it disproportionately hurts smaller people. Um, 
And those are things that people don't really realize. And, and it's like the same concept of property taxes is like when, when the assets inflate in value, so do the, the cost of the taxes on it. Because I, I think like in Tucson, there's like a 9% um, sales tax. So that's nine cents on every dollar. And so, you know, say if there's food inflation, then the tax also goes up, you know, yeah. and then you know, there's gasoline and well, actually we don't, I don't think we have sales tax on food, but you know, all the, all the other products that, that they well, not sales tax on groceries at least, but like going to restaurants and, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, but yeah. Um, I think a lot of times it's the easiest tax for them to access because it's um, you know, there's less getting around it. And so, I think, mm-hmm. especially in developing economies, it's it's they depend on the majority of their income from that. Um, but you're right; it does definitely impact the the poorest uh, more than than the wealthy. Yeah, I mean, it, I would imagine it's really difficult to keep track of everybody's transactions. You know, if there's not a robust banking system, so implementing taxes is very difficult. Um, yeah, I, I saw something, I, I don't remember the exact statistic, so I may be off, but I saw something like, you know, only 40% of Argentinians pay taxes. Um, it's a, you know, small. It's even less. I mean, I know in Argentina, it's a huge issue. And I mean, that's what happens every time the government steps up and takes more control and raises the taxes, more and more people try to get out of the system. Mm-hmm. And it creates this um, negative feedback loop and so then you got to raise the taxes more because there's less people paying it. And so that's why the best way is to have a broad flat tax that kind of spreads it out and have minimal level of government so that, you know, people are focused on being productive instead of focused on how to get out of paying taxes. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the funniest things when people argue against capitalism. Um, one of the things they don't realize is that capitalism exists in every single economic system. So like, you know, capitalism allowed people in the Soviet Union through black markets to eat and when there were food shortages. And it's the same thing in North Korea right now currently happening is they have robust black markets. And, you know, the reason is because people need to survive and they need to use a a system that actually works in order to um, distribute goods and services and, and, you know, money that they need to, to survive it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting so like learning how to balance that that system of like you know how can you have a functioning good economy with um and, and you know some of the anarchists might heavily disagree with me on this subject and that's okay um i love i love having anarchists on the show it's fun to to pick their brains um but yeah it's a yeah. So, so what are, what are some of the most exciting developments going forward over the, as you're looking forward to the next year with Bitcoin? I think one of the most exciting things has been seeing the number of people that are being paid in Bitcoin now. Mm-hmm. So um, we have always paid our staff in Bitcoin. And so we've had, you know, depending on how many projects were going on, we, we've had up to 80 people, you know, working, getting paid in Bitcoin. I think right now we have about 30 people um, between our construction teams for the, the um, learning center that we're building and then just our team that's more focused on Bitcoin stuff. 
but we've also seen um, some private companies start to pay their employees in Bitcoin. And for them, it was a logistical thing. They were saying, hey, our, our people have to take a half day every Friday because they have to take the bus into the city and stand in line and go cash their check. And they're less productive because of this. And it's an expense. If, if we paid in Bitcoin, will they have to do that? And we're like, no, they, they have it right there in their phone. They can pay at all these local businesses in Bitcoin. And so um, they initially moved just part of their staff over. But once the... Half of them were using Bitcoin. The rest of them wanted to be able to use it also. And so I think that seeing that actually happen of people being paid in Bitcoin, uh, we've also started a professional lifeguard program uh, throughout the region where we're at. And so we're going to have, I think right now we have about 20 um, lifeguards being paid to, to be professional lifeguards. So they're getting their monthly salary in Bitcoin. And we have about 40 more that are coming on. And so, yeah, just seeing the, the legions of people grow as far as that are being paid and getting their salaries in Bitcoin. And also seeing people save in Bitcoin and people seeing people for the first time in their life, think about the future and start to accrue wealth so that they can start a business, so they can put their kids through college, so they can do these things that they didn't have the opportunities to do before. Yeah, that's huge. Getting paid in Bitcoin is a big, big game changer for sure. Um, where, where are some good places people can follow your work? So mostly, uh, Twitter is usually the best. Um, um, we also have our website is, uh, just www.bitcoinbeach.com. Um, I'm kind of bad about updating it. So, you know, sometimes it can be a little out of date, but you can see like the broad overview of, of what we have going on there, but I'm pretty consistent on Twitter. And so we try to post pictures of, uh, you know, the latest projects or events, if we're having a Bitcoin food festival or something like that, we'll, we'll promote it on Twitter. And then my DMs are always open. So I, I try to respond uh, to everybody that, that shoots me a question. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I like your website a lot. It, it's great. Very well done. Um, but yeah, anyways, really appreciate you coming on, Mike. This is a lot of fun. Um, I'll definitely try and make it down to El Salvador here in the next couple of years, um, whenever it's, you know, oh, you can't, you can't wait a couple of years. You got to come down. Uh, I think we're going to have the, uh, the new podcast booth in the training center done in a couple months here. So you'll have to come down and, uh, you know, break it in for us. All right. I will, I will for sure <laughs> to be happy to, to help. but either way, I'd, I'd love to get involved and, uh, yeah, I, I guess like follow-up question to following work. If people were wanting to get involved or support you, what would be a good way to do that? Sure. So we always uh, accept Bitcoins in our donations in Bitcoin that we keep and spend in Bitcoin to fund our different projects. So um, through Twitter, you can, uh, I, I believe you can go through there or on the website. There's also a way for people to give through the website. Um, and then if people want to come down and participate in the Bitcoin economy. And if you have special skill sets, offer some training or do some volunteer work while you're here, um, just support the, the businesses by spending some sats and enjoying the, the beautiful beach here. Awesome. 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 Yeah. That, that interview got me stoked. It, 
was so good talking to Mike and, and hearing his perspective on how Bitcoin really levels the playing field for uh, people in El Salvador. And I think very similar things could happen here in Tucson. You know, if you're a merchant, you pay uh, pretty hefty fees, 3% per transaction or so to the payment processors. If you're a content creator and you use something like Patreon, 30% of the fees go to Patreon. You know, and Bitcoin brings those numbers back down to zero, you know, so you get all the money that you um, receive instead of having this additional tax from the service. And you can set up open source software like BTC Pay Server to facilitate it and have all the same features as your payment processor, uh, except that you're accepting Bitcoin. And uh, it's awesome. Yeah, but I'm really excited about where things are going with the Lightning Network. I think it's going to be a game changer and it's going to be what's going to allow for um, commerce to really boom and grow. And, you know, if these are things that are interesting to you, I would definitely suggest getting to your local Bitcoin meetup. Uh, that's a great place to learn, talk to Bitcoiners that have been in the space for a while. We've got two up in Phoenix. Uh, there's the Phoenix Bitcoin meetup and the Arizona Bitcoin Network. And then uh, down in Tucson, we have the Tucson Bitcoin meetup. Um, and yeah, it's, I'm really excited about those because uh, we're getting Arizona moving. We're getting people onboarded to Bitcoin, um, learning about it, and it is great. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Make sure to go and check out Bitcoin Beach on Twitter um, and go to the website. And uh, if you feel the desire to and have the ability to i'm sure they would really appreciate donations um so yeah hope you enjoyed this interview and have a good one